Are your customers the kind who politely come and go and sometimes leave you little hearts on social media? Or are they actually obsessed with what you do? The difference between an incredible brand and all the others is how they create fans. Welcome to the Brand to Fan Show, where we unpack the phenomenon of fandom and how to cultivate affinity, loyalty, and trust to build more fans so you can future-proof your business. Here's your host, Lauren Teague. Well, the premise of brand to fan is observed at the highest levels of business. In fact, if you think of some of the brands you're actually a fan of and what led you to become a fan, you'll find some similarities there. And that's why I've invited Ron Tite, who has worked with legendary brands like Google, Intel, Microsoft, Hershey, and even DoorDash to help us uncover how the world's biggest brands compete and win the battle for time with their audiences. And so that the rest of us can learn how it happens at the highest levels. Ron, you are the founder and chief creative officer at Church and State. I've got one of your books here, Everyone's an Artist. And I was telling you that I actually have Think Do Say, You're Awesome, second book. Uh, it's on my phone because I take it with me wherever I go. I, I love it that much. Um, Ron, thank you so much for joining me on the Brand of Fan Show. Thanks for having me. And hello, everybody out there. Ron, one of the promises we make on this show is to unpack the phenomenon of fandom. And that's an interesting take because like, we actually self-identify ourselves naturally through groups and how we reflect ourselves in other people. That's not really a solo exercise, even though it happens in nature. I want to ask you, what does fandom actually mean to you as a person or as a marketer? Well, I think a, a f fandom is um, people who take a who take support uh, for a brand to a completely different level. Uh, it goes above and beyond anything that is normally expected or that it normally develops out of a you know transactional relationship. And you know, I think that the idea of fans is is such a great it's just a great word. For, I know it seems like it's obvious, but but it's not, you know, because we the, the fans are rooted in people who cheer. They actively cheer for their quote unquote home team. They they cheer for their home team and is an undying love for their home team. And, you know, their home team can do no wrong. And they, you know, they affix themselves with apparel and with face paint and uh, will get, you know, stripped naked in their upper torso and paint obscene gestures uh on their uh horribly out of shape bodies uh all what all do you do up there in canada for hot but we do it it's very cold <laughs> it all very on. cold so we actually don't go get that naked that often but that's to me what fans do you know it's it's almost uh an unrealistic uh support of a of a brand or a, of a team i love that unrealistic support of a brand or a team, yet it's something that we do quite naturally. And you don't have to be a fan of like a sports team to have kind of that hero's journey with with something that you're a fan of. What are some of the things that, you know, growing up that you were a fan of that maybe shaped some of the the choices or the the paths that you had in your career? Well, certainly on the sporting side, you know, I was born in Montreal, so I was a big Expos fan, a big, big Montreal Canadiens fan. And, and I saw, you know, Montreal Canadiens fans are... That though, I mean, it's original six. Those are pretty, you know. There's not much else there in terms of sport, right? So they're really, really focused on the Canadians, and every pass is is uh, evaluated and and um, 
uh, criticized uh, by their by their fans. But I, I also think, you know, fans of music tell us a lot. Um, I was a fan of comedy growing up. And, you know, to the point that when I saw Bill Cosby, or as he's now known, he who cannot be named. Sure. But when I saw him as a kid, it was... It was comedy on a whole other level because it was relatable and like it was accessible. Like, you know, when Jerry Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld tells the story, when Jerry Seinfeld saw Jonathan Winters, he's like, well, I can't do that. There's no way. That's, that's a whole other talent that's beyond belief. But when he saw Robert Klein, he thought, oh, wow, like this is someone I can relate to. I could, I could see myself doing that. When I saw Robin Williams, that was the equivalent of Jonathan Winterstreet. Was like, well, this is not something that is this is unhumanly somebody who has this talent and ability. But when I saw Bill Cosby, I was like, oh, I think this guy grew up in my house, and I think I could, I think I could do that. And so I became a fan of the genre, of a certain type of comedy, and what how that manifested itself was I then began to dissect it. So I wanted to, I became more curious about it. I became more invested in it. I wanted to see the method to the madness because it wasn't, oh, well, there's one in a million or Robin Williams or one in 10 million or Robin Williams, but like more accessible community is like, no, what, how are they actually going about this? Because this seems like I could maybe do this. Sure. So I kind of geeked out on on process and and all the kind of surrounding factors around comedy and how why somebody did something and what was their career trajectory and, and all, like, all that kind of stuff. That's awesome. I, I think it's kind of interesting, and, and you alluded to it, like he who must not be named. Comedy is, you know, it's a risky profession, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even to be a fan of a comedian, and, and we've seen not just one, but several uh, comedians like towards the end of their career or smack in the middle of their career, who have maybe had a misstep or have gone out of the cultural norms outside of that. And one thing that we haven't yet explored on Brand of Fan is really the that risk side of, of getting fans. And then what happens, because it's true, fans can fall out of love with you or be kind of ostracized for being a fan of that person. Now, your fandom for Bill Cosby, like that was a natural affinity because you just saw so much connection with you. But now I I wonder what kind of that relationship feels like that, right? So no. can you talk from where you've sit working with, with brands who are also playing on kind of this risky edge? They're so big. They're almost like too big to fail, but obviously nobody is. So what, you know, what's, what is the risk of uh, accumulating fans knowing that whether you're a comedian or you know, a really large brand that there's kind of an edge there. How do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's, there's, there's, it's, it's uh, between the two, there's a lot of similarities there. So, and you can, you can track the changes in comedy and the changes in marketing and they overlap and comedy may even kind of be a leading indicator for some of the changes in marketing, because the thing about comedy that's really interesting, that is more difficult in marketing is that, it's a pr- the metric is pretty simple. Either they laughed or they didn't. There's no, you know, in comedy, there's no, well, the engagement score was rather high, <laughs> but it has not resulted in transaction. Like, no, no, no. There is one metric and one metric only. Either they laughed or they didn't laugh. And that was it. 
And whereas in in marketing, there's a million different variables that can kind of go into creating something that is successful. But um, what we've seen in comedy is as consumers um, have looked to align their values with the things that they support, that they are fans of, and because they see a little bit of themselves in the things that they are fans of. And because they see a little bit of themselves, so if you're a Chicago Cubs fan for years, you saw you you thought that you were, you were kind of the sad sack, right? You know, you were the person like, yeah, it's got a little bit of me. I'm a little bit of a Chicago Cub. Um, in comedy, what comedians started to do was comedians started to go beyond the, the you know, kind of a belief in the purpose, of, more purpose over punchline. Uh, because they knew, I don't know that they analyzed it this way, but it organically moved in this direction where comedians started putting purpose over punchline. And so you started seeing, you know, Hannah Gadsby quit midstream of a show to kind of talk more about personal values. You saw people like Mike Berbiglia, you know, um, in Thank God for Jokes, asking people not to quote him out of context and the importance of humor to uh, kind of the human understanding. You had Adam Sandler, who, you know, was the most ridiculously juvenile comedians of all time, do a beautiful touching piece about Chris Farley. Uh, on uh, on his uh, last Netflix special. So suddenly the comedy became about more purpose than punchline. It was actually the real power was in the moments of silence between the laughter. And we saw this, we now start to see the same thing in the brand space where consumers want to see themselves and their values in the brands that they support. So it has to be an alignment there. Now, just as it has happened in, comedy, you then start to get counterculture. So you get people going like, that's right, I'm just going to be, you know, I'm going to say nasty shit because I want to say nasty shit and I don't care about the being woke and whatever other things they want to say. And that attracts a certain person who's maybe afraid of being wrong or is a person who is afraid of not being knowledgeable enough about progressive movements. Um, Same thing has happened in brands, you know, that you can align politics and values um, and purpose there's kind of two sides now and brands are picking a side. Yeah. What are some of the changes? So again, that's a little bit risky, but what changes are brands, like what questions are they really asking themselves when it comes to staying relevant with their stakeholders? Because hopefully the brands that you work with, the brands that I love to work with, they at least have some idea of what their brand values are. They have some idea of who their most important audiences are. And even if they need a little help being steered in the right direction, like they at least understand those pieces. So in the rooms that you're sitting in, what are the questions that they're asking about staying relevant, staying in the moment, or kind of what's next so that they don't lose relevancy with their most important audience? Yeah. And and the skeptics may not believe this, but this is literal this is the truth that brands are worried about being performative with it. Like they're worried about like, are we just saying this is the purpose, even though we don't truly, you know, what link does this have to us selling, you know, insert product here? And there's, you know, if you look at some of the Bo Burnham work right now and his special inside, it's the the line is like in one of the songs is, you know, uh, Bugle's take on race, right? Which is like, is this is this what we want? No, of course, purpose has to be strategically aligned to the thing we sell, to where we make our money. So how are they staying relevant? What what are the conversations they're having? The, we're, we're talking about purpose that is bound by the thing and defined by the, by the thing they by the thing they sell. 
and not some, it's not cause, it is true corporate and brand purpose. Secondly, are their actions aligned with delivering that purpose? So we used to be able, brands used to be able to go like, we'll just run a 30 second spot, it'll be totally great. Well, now we know that uh, a frontline employee actually delivering on the brand purpose or delivering on the promise is way more powerful than any ad campaign whatsoever. So um, the investment that's being made in experience and in internal communications to ensure that everybody is a quote unquote brand ambassador who works for the organization. They know specifically what we believe in so that they can deliver on that every single time. And then the third part is, are we talking about it in, a, in an interesting, authentic way? And are we talking about it in the right places? Um, so are we, are we, are we on TikTok and YouTube shorts? You know, are we in emerging channels and should we be there? Should, you know, is there a place for us? Can we be real and be real? Like, I don't know. I don't think so. And so they are having those conversations and it's this always will be this delicate balance of, do we actually want to be at a, are we welcome at that party? Like, do consumers really want us to be there? Or are we just using this as an opportunity to pitch slap people, to just be in a space where they're hanging out with other consumers and we're kind of popping in to sell them? So the last part that that is they're being taught, that is being discussed quite actively over the past month or so is what role does technology play in all this? And, and can we use automated forms of delivery and creation to be more efficient in our spend so that we can save some of the money for stuff that is really added value. Can we be kind of, you know, assembly lining uh, some lower calorie activities so we can save time, energy, and budget for things that are really impactful? You're listening to Brand to Fan with Lauren Teague. More after this. Getting video from your phone into socials just isn't as easy as we'd like it to be. That's why I've started to use Pictory.ai. It's a powerful AI technology that allows you to create and edit and brand and share incredible videos that start either with the text of a copy that you have or video from your phone or out of Zoom. I use Pictory.ai to create all of the shareable social media videos for the Brand Fan Show. I totally recommend that you try it out. And I've got a special link for you to do so. Go to lauren.click slash make a video and create your first shareable video on pictory.ai. That link is lauren.click slash make a video. Now back to brand to fan. Here's Lauren Teague. I know that you're working on, you know, kind of what happens next. The, the last time I watched you speak on stage, you talked more of this premise that you just explained and you called it think, do, say. Mm-hmm. Right. And and how that aligns. I'm, what's next for you? Like, what are the, are you taking what's happening now in 2023 and, and repackaging that for for clients? Yeah. So the the kind of emerging thought is now what, which is uh, how do we take what we've been through? How do we take what we've been through and where we are? So right now that we're just filled with contradictions and complexities, which is it, it, everything from is you know, is this hyperinflation going to, is this going to, you know, going to continue and are rising, raising interest ranks, interest rates by central banks going to help us out? Or is this a geopolitical event? It's not going to do anything. Is this going to be a soft recession? Is this going to be a hard recession? Be a long one, a short one? Who knows? Down to, are we hugging people again? Or are we sticking out and giving people the Heisman, you know, like, or the high-fiving people? Like, are we back in the office and enjoying that 
collaboration? Are we enjoying the freedom of working? But like, there's just all these contradictions. And the the one thought is that business leaders and marketers, they want to do the right thing. They're just not sure, sure what the right thing is. And then people are just kind of standing there going, can someone tell me what to do? I want to do the right thing. And uh, you know, over top of all of that, we've got these massive social injustices and you know, diversity and inclusion uh, approaches, which are desperately needed. And so there's a lot of pressure on business right now to get it right. There's a lot of there's a lot of pressure on marketing to get it right. And if we're honest, Lauren, we haven't even really scratched the surface on the big data thing, which was the last big shiny object that marketers were all clamoring about. Sure. We have not even got that to the point where we're actually have a dedicated process or a sound process that is uh, collecting uh, and archiving and uh, gathering insights from and changing content and you know kind of using those insights to change our communication. We're not even there yet. We're not even not even close to being there yet, and we're already on to the next thing. So how do you do all that? And it really, I think it's about one focus, and that's growth. That's it. Let's focus on growth. And as long as we identify that growth starts with personal growth. An organization can grow without personal. That's where it starts. People going, yeah, you know what? I'm going to change up what I do on a daily basis. Okay, I'm going to, and why don't, how do I do that in a really responsible way? So I'm going to invest in personal growth. When I invest in personal growth, now I can invest in team growth. And team growth occurs when we start to look at growing process, when we start to growing insights, when we start to grow systems. And then when those things start to grow, then organizations grow. And when organizations grow, isn't it amazing how the communities that they're a part of start to grow? Because as organizations grow, now you've got more margin, now you've got more profit, now you can you can experiment a little bit more, you can take a little bit more risk, you can take some chances. Um, and so that's where I think the future is, is just, it's a 100% focus on growth. That's amazing. I love that. And uh, you hadn't prepped me on for that. That's the first time I heard it. And you saw me perk up like, Oh, that that's right. Which is, you know, I I know as someone who likes to put ideas out into the world, that's that's the intended reaction. So uh, I thank you for now. I'm like <laughs> I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, how do I apply that as as a startup founder, as a you know, as someone who also goes in and talks to brands and businesses as well? Um, you've got you've given me a lot to think about there. You know, as someone who didn't wasn't always a marketer. Like I came into it through a PR comms messaging right. side and then the social content side. So even after eight years with Jay Bear in his tutelage, I have kind of deduced that marketing does basically two things. And I want to I want to throw this against the wall here and, and see if it sticks for you too. I think that marketing does a great job of capturing attention. It's that it's that thumb stopping in the feed. It's that that Super Bowl commercial. It's the viral hit, right? We can Lots of marketers are only concerned about attention. And I have always been of the ilk that I don't, it's not so much the attention, that's nice, but I want to help people fall in love. Hence, brand to fan. I think that brands who build fans build for the future that way. So I, if marketing to me, very simply comes down to two kind of two camps, attention or affinity, is am I missing something? Is marketing more complex today or is it just the channels, the noise that they create that this space feels messy and it feels hard to go through. But I think you're right at the end of the tunnel is is that growth. Growth is part of the light at the end of the tunnel. But can we use both attention and affinity to get there? Yeah, 100%. I, and I, I agree with your assessment or your 
depiction of marketing. It is really a bit about that. And but it's both. It's not one or the other. It's both. And for far too long, marketers have been and agency folks, certainly even more than clients, have talked about the idea of cutting through the noise and you know, kind of notice and attention. And that's never been what it's only been about. Because if you, if that's all you want, go naked. Like go, go, go naked. Like kill a puppy. You want to get attention? Kill a puppy. You're going to get eyeballs. Kill a puppy. Go ahead. See what happens. Well, the, and and that's been balanced with this like, oh, sorry, that I've been, you know, no, like, it's I have a puppy. I'm offended. Like, but, you know, if it's, so it's, so of course that does, that's not right because it's never been just about attention. It's about using attention to drive trust. It's about using attention to drive and kind of brand conviction and, you know, or fandom. Which is, hey, now that we've got your attention, we're going to talk to you about what we fundamentally believe in and what we do. And if that's something that re- is relevant to you, then you may want to, you know, follow for more, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. Um, yeah. But that's really what that's all, what that is only about. Now, if you don't cut through the noise, they'll never hear your intent. You'll never hear your what you fundamentally believe in. And if you, what you believe in and what you provide isn't baked in, you know, isn't relevant to them, well, then, then they feel like it's lunch bag letdown. They're like, ah, you got my attention, I'll deliver this. This is a clickbait headline. That's right. all that was. And you've actually done more damage than it had you not said anything at all. Yeah. I think one of the best examples that I've seen in the last couple of years of, of using both is Jesse Cole and the Savannah Bananas. And if you look, he's talking about attention. He's talking about capturing attention, building attention, breaking through the noise of of baseball with this unconventional banana ball idea. It's so much that he believes in that that he's actually exited his team out of their minor league affiliations and they're going full-time banana ball, which is awesome, (laughs) right? So he's talking about its attention. What he's really doing with every experience touch point around that team, whether it's the ESPN series, whether it's going there uh, and doing that, that's all affinity to me. What have you seen with Savannah Bananas? I know that that this is one of the things that we share in common, like a kind of a an admiration for what Jesse Cole and, and his wife are doing with Savannah Bananas, but just kind of from a, also as baseball fan to baseball fan, like what's interesting about that to you? There, I mean, one, just the name, the way it rolls off, <laughs> just like Savannah Bananas. Savannah Bananas, I think it's just amazing. It's lovely. Not lovely. It's hilarious and it's totally fun and consistent with the brand. He just did something the other day that I think says everything about the brand and about how they create great fans. What he well, what he's done for the brand all you know, at pretty much every customer touch point is like, what sucks about this? And there are there are legacy products and sports and brands and industries that all have certain components to them that suck. All of them, right? I love traveling. I travel a ton. I love hotels. I love great hotels. I love the service, everything else. I don't like paying $12 for a package of cashews. I think that's BS. And and I hate, like, I absolutely hate that. Um, when Virgin Hotels came in, Virgin Hotels were like, you know what we're going to do? The food in your room is the same price it is on the street. And I was like, now you're talking. This is something I can get behind. 
because I've loved all these other hotels, but there's certain components that I I just I absolutely hated. So I know that he knows that about baseball and that and and about and about sports. And that there are certain things that fans, while they go, they don't love everything. And one of the things fans hate is I hate that I have to spend four hundred dollars to get a ticket to a professional baseball game. That if I don't have, you know, season tickets and I want to go to a game, well, a reseller has scooped up all the tickets, you know, in cahoots with the organization. Um, and uh, because they're, they're paying the organization more money for the faith value of the ticket, and they're reselling it for significantly more, more people are winning. So over the short term, what does that do? Well, it's a spike in revenue for both organizations. And you might be going, amazing, that's great. No, because no one is, is, is taking the fan perspective in that. No fan is going to cheer for that move. And if you're playing the long game, what you want is more people in more seats for more time. And he knows that. And so he was offered a uh, reseller deal for a million bucks. They were going to buy a million dollars worth of tickets and resell those tickets. And he turned them down. Wow. He turned them down because he wanted his fans to be able to pay face value for tickets and not resell all those tickets to, to a reseller. And that just says somebody who really understands his fans and who really understands that the the long game for his business is on only keeping those fans happy and interested. You're listening to Brand to Fan with Lauren Teague. More after this. As you're out in the world listening to the Brand to Fan show, look up and start to count the number of team hats, t-shirts, pullovers, and jerseys you see. Once you start to see them, sports logos and team colors are seemingly everywhere. Well, this is exactly why I decided to build FanWagon, the web's re-commerce marketplace for buying, discovering, and reselling your sports fanware, be it vintage or just last season's jersey. FanWagon aims to serve both buyers and sellers at the intersection of sustainability and fandom and create a personalized and easy experience for second fan fashion. I'd love for you to go check it out today at fanwagn.com. That's fanwagon.com. I'll see you there. Now back to brand to fan. Here's Lauren Teague. Speaking of like, we both love to travel. Portland Airport, Portland International Airport, which is my hometown airport. They also do the on the street pricing inside. So they're not like, it's still six bucks for a cup of coffee, but it's not 12. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, I get that they're from, again, the rent is more like, I get that it can't be a direct, you know, cost comparison because there's different inputs and there's, you know, you got to maintain your margins and all that kind of stuff. But it's not what they, they're, most organizations are like, we can charge more, so we do. Yeah. I know you have an awesome story about a hotel that went above. They they aligned with their things you say, and it really made an impact on you. Would you grace us with that story and just how that changed your perspective of being there at that hotel. Are you a fan of them now? Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan. You know, as you know from the from the speaking world, you kind of it's not often you get to choose your hotel, right? Because you do you go where the gig is and you stay where they are. So I stay in a ton of different hotels. And when I do get an opportunity to travel for my own agency, then I get to, you know, select hotels. And really when I was in Vancouver a lot, I was staying at this place called the Westin Grand. And um, I stayed there once and tweeted out, like, I love the Westin Grand. 
and they they tweeted back like immediately you know like we love you too and i was like oh well, that's good. and they said does anything we can do to make your state better let us know so one they're reaching out going the the default right there's anything we can do to help you you know make your state better let us know and because people normally people are like thanks i said well if you're gonna ask i'll tell you there was no shampoo in the hotel room this morning and female listeners right now, or maybe Lauren, you're sitting there thinking, who cares? There's no shampoo. You bring your own. You're And you're like, nope, I'm a dude. We don't do that. What your listeners and viewers cannot see is I have a massive bald spot. I don't need <laughs> U Alberto for this. So I don't bring my own shampoo. I just use whatever's there. And when there's nothing there, bar of soap it is. Right? That's, that's what it is. So- I said there's no shampoo. They, of course, apologize profusely and say, you know, we'll replace it. And they come into the room. I wasn't there, but they go into the room. They replace the shampoo, blah, blah, blah. And then they later, they send somebody up with some fresh fruit and chocolate and a craft of ice water and a note that says like, hey, thanks for being a loyal guest and follower. You know, um, we hope you enjoy the rest of your stay. And here's a little treat from us. And I thought, well, that's going above and beyond like they're just they're kind of taking customer service to a different level and they're just making sure i'm cool even though it's such a first world problem so i talked about how they must have had a process and connecting social listening and social engagement within the hotel service like it's not somebody sitting in a different city like they're actually there or they're communicating with somebody to say get some food up to the guy's room so it's not just a twitter relationship but it's a total experience sure. so i love that and i talked about it and then I kept talking about it. And so people would tweet them. So they knew that I was talking, talking about. So the next time I go to the hotel, I, I don't even tell them I'm coming. I show up first thing, boom, there's a note there saying, thank you for talking about us during your speaking engagements. And I was like, well, they, they know this is okay. That's cool. And they go, you know, um, we hope you enjoy these, these treats. We hear they're your favorite. So first things I love diet Coke and barbecue chips. And they found out somehow, and there were two Diet Cokes in a champagne bucket, three types of homemade barbecue chips. Wow. Incredible. Go in the bathroom, there's 20 shampoos that are there waiting for me, right? There's 20 shampoos. Amazing. (laughs) Then I go in the bedroom, because, Lauren, I stay in fancy hotels where there's separate sleeping quarters. I go in the bedroom, and there is a uh, silver frame on the bedside table with a picture of me. Um, that they've downloaded from Instagram with our two dogs outside of our home. And it's on the bedside table with a note that says, hope this feels like home. Now, there's a million different things about that what I, that I love. So it's everything from finding out about the like, oh, this guy loves Diet Coke. We're going to, when he's here, he sees a little bit of himself in us. We're going to help him see more of himself in us by having his favorite things right there. Amazing. Okay, so that's cool. Secondly, amazing personality and sense of humor about putting the 20 shampoos and they're like incredible right yeah. uh so that's awesome um it's and you know i'm a background in comedy i love that insight second then thirdly that you know the fact that they took the time to download something put up in a silver frame you know as a as a home would be but here's the most i think the most important part about it when i talked to my wife she said there are First of all, I was like, isn't this amazing? And my wife's like, yeah, I'm sure you'll love it. Good for you. <laughs> but when I 
she said just the like I'm if if they put a picture of me in the frame that would have been creepy so I went to the hotel and I told them the next time I was there I asked to meet the guy and I said I just want you to know like I want to give you feedback I loved it my wife said if the frame picture would have been her would have been creepy and he goes we actually have a policy we'll only put pictures of people staying in the room in the frame because you never know who's bringing who to a hotel room now what I love about that, aside from what's brilliantly funny, um, and reminds us just how creepy it must be to work in a hotel, but sure. it reminds me that often we talk, we have these great ideas to connect with fans. We have these wonderful, brilliant ideas, and they're one-offs, and we celebrate one-offs, and one-offs are useless. <laughs> they're absolutely useless. That if you don't operationalize those great ideas and scale those ideas so that they could be delivered to every single possible fan, then you'd never scale the business. You have these series of one-off experiences, which are nice, but they do nothing to the business. And so what I love is that they said like, hey, um, you know, we've done this enough times. There was one time it didn't work out, and so we put in a policy. So they took a what I would call a concept car, and they put it on the assembly line. And it didn't make me feel any less special knowing that they had done this before. And that, I think, when you want to create bands, you need both. You need whack, wacky ideas. And if the Savannah Bananas do something in a game that's really fun and interesting, they need to then make that a part of every single game. That's how you deliver and create bands at scale. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. I love that story. I'm glad you retold it. And I'm now thinking like, now how do I get to Vancouver just to stay at the Epic uh, West and Grand and then ensure that they do have, like you said, they've, they've operationalized it enough that it's there in your profile. They know, you know, that you can go to any Westin and yeah. maybe get a similar experience. And, and I'm sure you do um, when you travel as much as you do. Well, I want to wrap this up by asking you, Mr. Tight, that two questions we ask everybody okay. on the brand of fan show i feel like and, i need to have like a hand on a buzzer like eh, uh, okay eh, no you can take it, it it's not a it's not a speed round it, you can take as much time as you need we talked about a couple great brands and and some things but i really want to know like what it could be a brand a product a service uh, an item of food what are you a fan of today right now today i'm a big fan of bo burnham bo burnham is a comedian and his latest special is called Inside, and it's absolutely brilliant. But what I love about Bo Burnham is he kind of went through the full, um, he had something really unique. He was a YouTuber. He, the haters came out of the woodwork and said he's not a real comedian because he's a YouTuber. He's not doing live shows. And so he went through the, you know, pivoted his business into kind of, competing against all the other comedians, doing exactly what other comedians did. He still brought his kind of unique production value to it, but he did live soft theater shows. And he did that, and I kind of lost his way a little bit. It was still really funny stuff, but he himself wasn't fulfilled. Hmm. And his show, Make Happy, um, which was you know, sold to Netflix, at the end of that, he quits stand-up comedy. Like, he quits. He quits doing stand-up comedy. And then over the over the pandemic, he kind of reconnects to that sense of purpose, I think, of like what he really got in it for. And he goes back to the room and creates inside. And it's his most brilliant work to date. It's nothing like any stand-up comedian you've ever seen before. Half of it, there's not a ton of laughs in there. It's a brilliant piece of art. 
and I don't know that I would call it music and I don't know that I would call it comedy and I don't know that I would call it entertainment. It's Bo Burnham. It's a, it's a sample of one. Yeah. And um, it just, he just reconnected with that sense of purpose, I think. Um, and while everybody is so conditioned to develop a specific level of expertise in doing that show, he wrote it, composed it, sang it, played it, lit it, shot it, mixed it, cut it. He did everything. What, yes. He had six Emmy nominations. He won for three for writing, directing, and editing, which are never won by the same person. And I just love that he is a yeah, population of one. Yeah, he really is. And that is something that I remember watching that multiple times uh, after it came out and, and getting small insights or small appreciation for for each little piece. You know, you watch it and you pull something new from that every time. So yeah. thanks for that reminder. Okay, next question. What is your favorite jersey or piece of fanware? That's in your closet, or you wish you hadn't got rid of. Um, them very simple. I'm, 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 a, like I, I think as we mentioned, before, I'm a season ticket holder for the Toronto Blue Jays. I'm a massive baseball fan. Um, I love the Toronto Raptors, but still Montreal Canadiens fan. But I don't, I don't wear jersey. Like I, when I go to games, I don't wear jersey, and I don't know why. I just I've never been a big jersey guy. But I'm very particular about my baseball hats. I have probably 25 Toronto Blue Jays hats upstairs <laughs> and I wear them all, but then <laughs> I get really geeky. So this is for those who know uh, what has to be one unstructured, which doesn't, there's no structure to the inside of the hat, right? It's a floppy kind of baseball hat. Um, and it's not one of those, like, you know, like those wide brim hats that all the young kids wear. Now they kind of, you look like a number, like a first round draft pick when you wear it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I don't like those. I need you know, a path that, like, sits on my hand. Um, and it's got to be mid-crown, so it can't sit too high, and it can't be too tight. It's got to be mid-crown, um, so partly down, and it's got to be... Um, Do you like not, fitted or Not fitted, adjustable? not fitted. Okay. I don't want to... Adjustable, adjustable. I don't like a fitted hat because, like, hair grows and stuff. I like I like an adjustable hat. And that is I'm very specific. It's not easy to find mid-crown hats. And so for Christmas this year, my wife got me one because she found a mid-crown trial Blue Jays hat, unstructured, adjustable, um, at the tiniest of weird stores ever. But i that's what I wear to games. That's what I wear to, excuse me, social engagements that I shouldn't wear baseball caps to. But uh, yeah, I'm a big hat guy. I love that. Well, if you need a place to put, you know, the next, the, the 20 of the 25, if you're wife is anything like me. My husband has collected hats for every Dallas Stars game that we've gone to in 15 years uh, being together. And and he probably started it before. Um, So yeah, we have quite the collection in the hat rack of of the same looking kind of, he's pretty particular about what he wears. Um, I'm selling a lot of them on Fanwagon once it gets launched. I bet. I will send you stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I a couple. We're not going to be live in Canada right away. You can send them to me and uh, we'll fulfill the hearts and dreams of, hopes and dreams of Toronto Blue Jay fans in the United States uh, until we get up to Canada. I can't yeah. wait. I, I, to, cl- to my wife is more excited than you, than you can imagine, the decluttering some of this stuff. Yeah. I, you know, as a sports fan myself, like I, I get it. Right. And I'm not really a wear a jersey to a game person, but Lord, I have the scarves and the t-shirts and the jackets and, and all of that. So, um, 
Ron, I am so happy that you joined us on Brand Fan. It has been just an incredible, enjoyable conversation. You know, the takeaways of when you scale great ideas and operationalize the process to stay true to your desired and defined purposes, that's when your brand is really on the way to create fans who are dedicated to the irrational hope and love that a fan truly does. What an amazing, amazing takeaway. I'm Lauren Teague, and he is Ron Tite, and this is The Brand of Fan Show, the, the podcast that unpacks the phenomenon of fandom to help you build for the future by creating more fans. You can find the links to Bo Burnham and, and other things that Ron mentioned in the show notes for this and every episode. That's on brandtofan.show. And if you love this episode, please share it with someone else. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on the where you get your podcasts or you watch this online. Again, my utmost appreciation to you, sir, um, the fabulous Ron Tite. Where can people follow you and uh, and get some of your work? Um, they can go to rontite.com. They can go to churchstate.com. Um, or I, I crank a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me there. But Lauren, thanks so much for, for having me. It's just, I mean, obviously, it's just such a joy to get to talk to you about smart stuff. Um, and thank, so thanks for doing this and thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of the Brand of Fan Show. I'm your host, Lauren Teague, marketing speaker, strategist, and the founder of FanWagon. You know, it means a lot to me to spend this time with you. So if you like what you're hearing, I'd love if you could drop me a note at brandtofan at teaguefc.com or message me on Instagram where I'm also teaguefc. If these brand of fan conversations resonate with you and you'd like to share this message with your audience, go to laurenteague.com to find out how I guide businesses and associations to stop chasing shiny objects and instead build for lasting affinity. The Brand Fan Show is produced by Teague FC and supported by FanWagon. Audio production is done by Brian Griggs and video editing done by Garrett Teague. Our producers are Kimberly Voorhees, Ashley Ruiz, and Carrie Hillbush. You can catch up on past episodes and guests and access bonus content by visiting brandtofan.show.